Hello and welcome to Autodidacts Anonymous. My name's Matt and I'm an autodidact. And my name is Hado and I too am an autodidact. Okay, so today we're, we're doing chapter 10 in Harari's book, Sapiens, and it's called The Scent of Money. Indeed, and this is a topic of great interest to, I think, all our listeners. Indeed. Um, now, you're a money man, Hutto. You've got a, a background in economics and working working with and around money. Um, what were your thoughts on this chapter? Did you learn something? Was it a new way of thinking about money for you? Yes, I learned a few things from this. I thought it was a wonderful inf- introductory chapter. I also found it interesting that we're looking at doing The Ascent of Money as our next book. And this did not cover that ground that that covers. It okay. was a wonderful introduction Ooh, to what nice. that covers. So I thought that was, that was good too. Okay, good. So starting from the beginning, as we usually do, um, hunter-gatherers had no money. Um, there may have been a small degree of economic specialisation within tribes, um, but goods and services were shared throughout the tribe. Um, so if I made a nice pot that you could carry water in, I might give it to you, Hutto, if you're my mate. Yes, indeed. Um, not a lot of emphasis on property, most things shared around the tribe. Yeah. Um, and people can watch Dancing with Wolves and stuff like that to get a good idea of the nature of that sort of system. Yep. Now, some, some simple barter probably took place between tribes. It certainly did. And in fact, even harking back, the Neanderthals had a small amount of regional trade going on as well. That's right. Yes, I do remember talking about that. So after the agricultural revolution, this actually didn't change very much at all. Um, It wasn't until the rise of cities and kingdoms, which came a few thousand years later, uh, and improved transport infrastructure which created opportunities for full-time specialisation. Yes. So instead of me going out and uh, digging in the fields all day, I could be a professional pot maker. Absolutely. And I could do better at making pots because I'm not much good at digging uh, digging <laughs> holes in the ground. Uh, not that I'm very good at making pots either. <laughs> which, which introduces one of the first basics of economics, specialisation of labour and the increasing efficiency and returns you Correct. get from that. Um, so now you could be a full-time shoemaker or a doctor because there was enough abundance around that you could make a living doing that. Um, if you're really good at something, uh, it actually became worth your while to specialise because you could be more productive and hence more wealthy. Indeed. And what applied to the individual also applied to the group as a whole. Yeah. So I could, I could, uh, make 10 pairs of shoes a week if I was a shoemaker. Don't need 10 pairs of shoes a week, but I could trade nine of them. Yep or a lot more barley than what I could grow myself. Yep. Um, so increasing opportunities for trade sort of came about. Um, but this also came with problems. And the problem is, how much barley is a pair of shoes worth? Well, this is true. And while we're on that, we should probably point out that the agricultural revolution almost forced specialisation. You know, you tended to be a one-crop farmer. Yeah. So... The need for trade and therefore the need for money almost came hand in hand with the agricultural revolution. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, but it, but with civilization, which is later than the agricultural revolution, let's not forget that. There's about five thousand years there. Uh, Correct. Um, before yes, before civilization it, it, came about, it takes a takes a while. <laughs> I'm not sure that we've really achieved civilization yet. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. We're still working on it. Um, so, how do you manage the exchange of goods between specialists? Um, so traditionally, favours and obligations have been used. So I can give you a pair of shoes if you give me a coat down the track. Yeah. Because we know each other and, you know, uh, we'll remember those sort of things. Um, but this became pretty unwieldy once the economy became large enough. Yes. And there's a lovely transaction that occurs in Dancing with Wolves where... Yeah. Dances with wolves. Dances with wolves, where he he trades, uh, he has to trade his hat for a knife and whatever. Yeah. And you can see that you know 
this does not work well. Yeah, because they, they, they don't know how much each item is worth. That's right, and yeah. there's no way of giving change and things like that. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't mind buying Manhattan Island for a, for a couple of beads and a mirror. Well, indeed. Um, this is what happens when there's a certain um, uh, dissimilarity between markets. This was not a very free <laughs> yeah. market. Yeah, it's right? a fairly inefficient market, that one. Yeah, but, uh, inefficiency in markets, yeah. So bartering can only take you so far. So, for example, how many apples does it take to buy a pair of shoes from a stranger? Yeah. Um, how much wheat does it take to buy a pair of shoes? How much cloth? Uh, how big do the apples need to be? How yeah. nice do they need to Absolutely. be? Absolutely. Um, how big should the pair of shoes be? Because a pair of shoes is not a pair of shoes, Hutto. They're all different. They are. Um, so every day, the apple grower and the shoemaker will have to know and you the relative prices of dozens of commodities. Yes. And I'm starting to realise why I think writing may have been invented, possibly to you know, help keep track of some of this stuff. Um, turns out that if there are a thousand different commodities in the market, which yeah, there probably would have been, yeah. traders would need to know 499,500 different exchange rates. Yep. Um, barter also requires that each, each side wants what the other person is trading. So... What if the shoemaker doesn't like apples? Yeah, big problem. The apple growers, you're not going to get his shoes. You have to find a shoemaker who likes apples. That's right. Or you have to find a third party. That's right. Who wants each of things and he's prepared to give something for it. That's right. Yeah. So some societies basically tried to formalise the solution to that problem by setting up a central bartering system. So yes. you'll, you'll take your goods into the central marketplace and barter there. Yeah. And apparently that worked... Uh, that's what they tried to implement in the um, USSR. Yeah. But it didn't work very well. No, no. They, uh, two problems there. One is it's not a good system, and two is they didn't implement it very well either. Right. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to implement a poor system well, I suppose. Correct. Now, if you've got enough depth of market nowadays with an internet... It's a bit like dating sites or anything else. It might actually be possible to set this up. Um, but, hey, it's easier to use money. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you? Um, so the solution was the invention of money. So money came along and solved all our problems, and that's the end of history, the end. Everyone's happy now. Well, I suspect it's really the start of what the economists would think of as economic history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so money was invented separately in many different places, because this was obviously, you know, when something's invented independently in a number of different places, you know it's an idea, you know, waiting to happen. Exactly right. And the, the causes were common in a number of different places. Yep. And would you believe it, human beings came up with a similar solution. Yeah, agriculture is another example of that. that exactly was invented so. Independently yeah. in a lot of different places. Um, now, it wasn't coins and bank, banknotes. It was anything that people are willing to use in order to systematically represent the value of things for the purpose of exchanging goods and services. Yes. Um, it allowed people to compare quickly and easily the value of different commodities, such as apples and shoes. Yep. And to easily exchange one thing for another. Yep. And to store wealth in a convenient form. Yes. Now, I've studied economics uh, a bit in the past, and there are three definitions of money, or three uses of money, and there uh, are three. Wikipedia is showing four at present. Okay. So well, I, I learnt three okay. uh, in my degree, Yeah. and a, a means of exchange. Yes. Um, mean, oh, you know, you know um, these. Means or medium of exchange. Medium yes. of exchange. Is a, a way to value things. Yes. And... and and storage of yes. wealth. Storage yeah, that, that was the three yeah. things. That's right, yes. yeah. So they're the now, three things now that were mentioned. Now, what they're breaking out separately these days is also a definition of debt. Right. Um, so while you're using the dollar value to define, dollar or monetary value to define the value of something, a, a transaction or whatever, they're also saying that with debt, it fixes the debt. And despite inflation and everything else, that amount generally does not change. Okay, okay. Well, that's new. That's, that's subsequent to when I, when I studied. Subsequent to the last 500 years, 50, well, quite a long time anyway. <laughs> so uh, there have been many types of money, uh, 
over the journey, and coins are obviously the classic example. Yes. Um, but money existed long before the invention of coins. Yes. Um, such things were used as shells, yeah. cattle, salt, grain, beads, cloth, and promissory notes. Yes. And shells could still be used to pay taxes in Uganda as late as the early 20th century. Well, I should have been mining shells. <laughs> yeah, you should have been. It's a bit like Bitcoin mining now, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yes, very similar. Um, because one of the things about all these is you can actually go and get your hands on more of it. You can grow more of it. You can collect more of it. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, or, as in the case of cryptocurrencies, you can mine more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, in modern prisons, cigarettes are often used yes. as the currency. So even if you don't smoke, they still have value to you because you can get cigarettes off somebody yep. and then buy something else and trade with your cigarettes. Else. That's right. In fact, in Afghanistan, when the Russians were in occupation, you could pay for your taxi fare with bullets. Ah. <laughs> One of the more interesting... Yeah, yeah interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. Um, I suppose if you're a smoker in a prison, it, it's a bit like... Being being an actual smoker is a bit like setting fire to your money. You're better off being a non-smoker. You'll well, be wealthier. No question. Yeah. Um, so but, that, even, but that's not no different to eating your barley or whatever, you know. It's, no, but you don't set fire to your money. No, when you don't set fire to... Well, no, you don't. We don't use our money but, for and, another purpose. Like, you don't, uh, you, know, you don't make clothes out right, of $100 yeah, bills. Uh, that's right, because it's now got no intrinsic value. Um, it's, but, you know, you originally, food was used as a form of money. Yeah, but cigarettes have an intrinsic value. Well, that's right. You can, <laughs> you can smoke them and whatever. And I'm... Quite sure that, yeah, look, cocaine has been used as a transactional medium. And, of course, diamonds are used quite a lot these days, too. Not that anybody eats yeah. diamonds. I know cattle in a lot of parts of Africa. Cattle yes. is a, certainly a, a storage of wealth yes. uh, in, par, in pastoral societies. Yes. You know, on the steppes of Asia and stuff. Uh, horses yeah. are a big one. Um, so even today, like, we probably think of money as coins and banknotes. But even today, coins and banknotes make up only 10% of the, the total money supply. Yep. Um, the sum total of money in the world, as per Harari's audiobook, was $60 trillion. Yeah. Uh, and when we do actually do some fact-checking around here, yeah. uh, the book was recording $497 trillion. That's a quite a big difference. It's a huge difference. <laughs> and we had a little trouble uh, sorting that one out. Uh, the, so... My understanding is that sixty trillion would have been right uh, eight or so years ago, before we had all this uh, banks, central banks creating more and more money to uh, prop the world currencies up. Yeah, four hundred forty-seven trillion. I mean, it's it's hard to believe that in the audio book and the printed version of the book, <laughs> there's such a big difference. It in those is numbers. yes, and I I I was very surprised when I saw that figure in the book. Um, and I, I put it down as something I wanted to check. It's not such an easy thing to check as you'd expect. Um, yes, there were figures in on Google, um, but trying to get breakups of how much you really want to be on the European Central Bank or something to have access to. I just uh, apparent according to the CIA in twenty twenty, there's eighty trillion dollars of money right. in the world, uh, five trillion of which is in coins and banknotes in currency. Yeah. Now, so I, that, that implies that uh, 447 might be, I don't know, it's a misprint or I don't know what happened there. I've also seen figures coming out of the United Nations saying that there's $2 trillion a year being laundered from illegal businesses. Now, you mm-hmm. know, over a five-year period, we're talking $10 trillion there. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that that's increasing the money supply, but it's certainly got to make you wonder about some of the numbers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so let's just use $60 trillion as the, the amount of money in the world for the sake of the argument, although that number's about uh, 10 years old probably. Um, and at that time, the sum total of coins and banknotes was around $6 trillion. So you're talking about more than 90% of our money exists only in computers yes, and also in our shared imagination. And that percentage would have increased over the last 10 years. Um, we're seeing more and more stuff done in computers, more and more stuff done 
in central banks and bonds and stuff like that. And a lot of governments are trying to get rid of cash because it's difficult to get the tax return on cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everyone always wants money because everyone else wants money. Absolutely. This is, in fact, the key to why money is so useful. Mm. Uh, um, it means you can exchange it for whatever you want or need. Yes. It's a universal medium of exchange that allows you to convert almost anything into almost anything else. Yes. Um, it's also a highly convenient method of storing wealth. Um, so it's a lot easier to um, have a safe in your house than to have... A bit like Scrooge McDuck, have a big vault <laughs> filled with barley, I was thinking. That's just um, he happens to fill his with coins and he goes swimming in it on a daily basis. But <laughs> it's probably not the most convenient way to store your money. Indeed not. No, but, I mean, you always have the problem that, yes, you can build a big granary. So, you know, your agriculture revolution, granary the farmer puts his stuff into storage and... Then he gets, goes away with a little sheet of paper or something saying he's got this much in storage. And it becomes very obvious that it makes more sense for him to transfer that to somebody else yeah. than to actually shift all the grain. As long as, he, as long as the person he transfers it to trusts that he actually has the Exactly. The yeah. um, so it's, it's also very transportable, the money. So you can't... If I decide I want to sell my house and move to another state or another country, I can't take my house uh, with me. Mm. Um, when you move, for example, to a faraway location, you, I can't take my crops with me either. Um, what I need to do is exchange them for money, which will be accepted in the new place that I move to. Yes. Right. So without money, commercial networks and markets would have remained very limited in their size, complexity and dynamism. Yes. Um, so how does money work? And the answer to that is it only has value in our collective imagination. It's an idea. Yes. It has no inherent value, as we were speaking about before with the cigarettes. No intrinsic value. Of intrinsic, it, yeah. yeah. Um, it's not a material reality, but a psychological construct. Yes. Um, why does money work? Um, it only works when people trust... The, this figment of the collective imagination. Yes. Which is really easy to do in this day and age because everyone believes it. It's, um, a, it's a collusive delusion. Mm. We've all agreed to share the same madness. The king is wearing clothes. Yes. So the whole money system is based on trust. You'll only exchange... I'll only sell my house for money and move in state if I trust that my money that I receive from my house will be accepted for other goods and services in my new home. Right. Um, it's the most efficient and universal system of trust ever developed. Yes. Uh, I believe in money because my neighbours believe in it, and they believe in it because I believe in it. And this is absolutely fundamentally important. And it actually also goes into an innate characteristic of human beings. Um, we've got an unusual development so that we've got some of the instincts of a herd animal, some of the instincts of a pack animal and some of the instincts of an individual. But we know, for example, what it is to try and blend in with the crowd. You know, the uh, head prefect's looking for someone to pick on and we know how to look like every other student there, um, the same as everybody else. We're also interested in having the same values as everybody else. So. Women, for example, when they're checking out a guy and they're not sure whether he's attractive or not, they look at how other women are behaving towards him. If they're all behaving as if he's attractive, then they figure he's attractive. Well, I do know from experience that if you're, if you're dating a girl, it's very important that her friends like you, otherwise you're in trouble. Absolutely. Um, now, and it goes, you know, that goes into the whole groupie phenomenon, you know, if everybody else is screaming at the Beatles, then we should scream at the Beatles. Yeah. And so... It very much applies it helps the money thing. If they think it's valuable, then I can think it's valuable. Mm. And then I'm joining in with the group and we've all got shared and the myth, values. And the myth actually becomes true and a lot easier to believe in. Exactly right. So when money was first developed, people didn't have this intrinsic trust that you and I have no. today. Uh, so money had to be invented out of things that actually did have real intrinsic value. Yeah. 
So, for example, in, in Samaria around 3000 BC, money was made out of barley grains. Yes. So even if it wasn't worth anything as money, you still had the barley. Yeah, at least you could eat it. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, it took time for people to gain trust in it as money. Um, but it was a bit easier to, to, to build that trust because it had an inherent value, yeah. right? It can be eaten. Um, it was still difficult to transport and store, though. Yes. Um, so there were disadvantages to it, but at least people trusted it, which is probably the most important thing. Exactly. Um, then later on, as people started to get used to this money system, uh, they were all more, ably, more easily able to transfer their trust to money that had no implicit value. Mm. So... About 500 years later, around 2500 BC, we see the introduction of the silver shekel right. in Mesopotamia. Um, now, a shekel is not a coin, but it's basically a, a measured weight of silver. Yes. Right? I actually didn't know that. I mean, no, you see I, shekels all the time in the Bible, and now yes. I know what it is. Um, it had no inherent, it had almost no inherent value, right? right? You can't eat it, drink it, or wear it. And you can't make weapons out of it. No. Um, you can make a few pretty things, yeah. such as jewellery, out of it. Yeah. Right? Um, so weighing and measuring all the silver uh, became fairly onerous. Yes. So... Because it was too easy to mix it in with some stuff like lead or whatever. Yeah, and paint it silver. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so essentially set weights of precious metals eventually gave way to coins. And around... It took a while, though. So around 640 BC. So we're talking 2,000 years yeah. of shekels. It, it's a, stuff we learn between the ages of four and seven took thousands of years to develop. To develop, yeah. So they, they first appeared in uh, Lydia in Western Anatolia. And that's where uh, King Croesus was from. He ah, was the Lydian king. So right. the saying, as rich as Croesus, yes. came about because he actually didn't invent the coins. One of his, one of his ancestors did, but... Uh, he had a lot of them. He had a lot of them. That's yeah. right. Well, he, he was the one churning them out. So. Yeah, that's right. So these coins had a standardised weight of gold or silver in them, and they were imprinted with an identification mark that you could trust. Yes. So you, you, took, it, you took it on trust that it had that amount of silver that's or gold. That's right. And so you've got a mutual trust yeah. with a third party. The king has guaranteed Correct. Which is Which is... Interesting because the silver or gold itself is not actually doesn't really have that much value anyway. <laughs> but you know, we're now talking layers of ideas. That's right. Yes, yeah, it, it's yeah. shared. Uh, I need to have trust that this worthless material is in my coin. <laughs> um, the mark indicated how much precious metal the coin contained, and also the authority that issued it and guaranteed its contents. Absolutely, and that, I mean, this also came back to our good friend Archimedes with. Uh, because um, the problem was uh, how much had the person who fashioned the crown for the king actually put all the king's gold in there or not. You right. remember that one? I, I did. Well, no, I know the bathtub story. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, which you can tell if you yeah. like, but I didn't know it was about Wayne. Uh, yeah, yeah, Archimedes' problem. The, the king referred to Archimedes and said, well, how do we tell? You know, we know how much the crown weighs, but what's its volume? Yeah. And Archimedes was saying, how do you tell the volume of something without melting it down? Yeah. And he worked it out in the bathtub. Eureka. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so there were two important advantages of coins over the weighed uh, metals. Um, firstly, it didn't need to be weighed for every transaction. Right. So you, so you didn't need to have a set of scales next to your cash register anymore, Hutto. That's right. And the guarantee was there that that precious metal uh, That's right. What was contained? So you, in the coin. you didn't need to have a bathtub next to your scales. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> well, you had. Well, you had. Yeah, because you had the word of a of a trusted third party, i.e., the king. Right. That it was in it. And we can see where banking is coming in and all this, can't yeah. we? So counterf counterfeiting was always considered to be a, a very very serious crime. Yes. It's not just theft, but it's actually an act of treason against the sovereign's word. Absolutely. So you're misrepresenting his promise yes. to his people, and he takes that pretty seriously. Yeah, because you're also in the process endangering the value of his treasury. Um, and it's, it's no accident that in wartime, um, you know, World War II and World War I, the Germans were counterfeiting British sterling pounds and the Brits were counterfeiting German marks yeah. around the place. Um, 
because it's not only gave you more purchasing power, but it gave you purchasing power at the cost of your enemy yeah. and his trust. His reputation. Is, is, that's right. He's also yeah, been compromised. Um, so it's been typically punished by pretty serious torture and Indeed. death. So uh, we, the trust of the people in the coins needed to be maintained um, to maintain the integrity of the king's reputation, but also to maintain the integrity of the economy as well. Yes. So it was, it was very important. So the trust in some currency, such as the Roman denarii, was so strong that it started to become accepted outside of the Roman Empire. Um, and you found, and what happened actually was other cultures, as they started to introduce their coin system, they basically copied the design of the Roman denarius uh, when they started to mint their own coins. And, yeah. and that's because there was inherent trust in it already, a bit yep. like the barley example that we used before. Um, the dinar is still the official currency in many Middle Eastern countries. Yes. Hmm. Um, the Chinese developed a currency of their own, uh, and close trading ties were established between China and Lydia. Um, the gospel of gold was spreading throughout the world. Yes. Uh, the world was really becoming a single mon monetary zone. Well, it certainly is a single monetary zone now. Um, originally, it relied on gold and silver. And later on, we even took the gold and silver out of it. And we rely on a few trusted currencies. These days, it's the US dollar. Okay. Um, so this unified monetary zone laid the foundation for the uni unification of Afro-Eurasia and eventually the entire globe. Yes. The gold and silver found in the Americas by the conquistadors allowed Europeans to buy silk, porcelain and spices from East Asia, for example. Yes. So you're really getting global unity now. Yes. This is how money unifies whole continents, even when they can't, you know, they bitterly disagree on everything else. Yeah. So, how did so many separate cultures share this belief in, in gold slash money? Um, and the answer is, once trade connects two areas, the forces of supply and demand tends to equalise the prices yes. of transportable goods. So, for example, after the... the Europeans always were interested in gold. And when the Spanish went to the Central and Southern Americas... They found a lot of gold and silver, yep. okay, and um, you know they, they became wealthy. Now the Indians uh, were very uninterested in gold right. when they started trading with the Europeans. So, uh, how do you trade with someone who's not interested in what you've got to offer? And yep. the answer is that merchants travelling between the two areas would notice the difference in the value of gold. Yes, it was cheap in India, so they'd buy a, a bunch of gold in India, and it was expensive in Europe, so they'd sell in. Um, in Europe. Yeah. So the demand for gold in India goes up. Yeah. And the price goes up. Yep. The supply of gold in Europe goes up, which means the price, you know, is forced down. Yes. And gradually you meet equilibrium, demand That's and right. supply. And now all of a sudden you've created a, a, a market and a value for gold in India that previously didn't exist. It's a market arbitrage and it's... Yeah, arbitrage, yeah. yeah. So... Um, that's how it happens. Yeah. Um, so now all of a sudden Indians are into gold as well. Absolutely. Yeah, so we corrupted them That's <laughs> nicely. Right. And they've all been sucked into as part of the one world of finance. Yeah. So people who don't agree on anything else, such as religion, can nevertheless almost always agree on a monetary belief. Yes. Um, religion asks us to believe in something, whereas money only asks us to believe that other people believe in something. And that's what I was talking about, our innate interest, you know. They think he's beautiful, so I'll think he's beautiful. He thinks that's valuable, so I'll think it's valuable. Yeah. And because it's also a reinforcing yeah. thing. It's, it's very contagious. Yes. Uh, money is the high watermark of human tolerance. It is more open-minded than language, state laws, culture codes, religious beliefs, and social habits. It's the only trust system created by humans that can bridge almost any cultural gap, and it doesn't discriminate based on gender, race, or sexual orientation. Even people that don't know or trust each other can cooperate effectively. Yes. Now, I, I learned something about money from this passage of Harari. Um, 
this trust thing, you've made the point before to me that for an alcoholic, alcohol is both the cause of their problems and the solution to their problems. Yeah, the, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. That's from Homer Simpson. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the same thing with money. Money is useful for trading because it provides a means of value, a transfer of value that everybody agrees in, mm. agrees on. And yet, the reason everybody agrees it's got value is because it's useful for trade. Yeah. So it, it's, it's both the cause and solution to the problem. Yeah, yeah. So this fact that it's more open-minded, doesn't discriminate, uh, everybody loves it, makes money sound like it's just the best thing we've ever invented. It does sound good. Mm. Almost as good as chocolate. <laughs> Never worked out why chocolate didn't passes money except I think it gets eaten too much. Not as easily stored. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're better off with, you're better off with money without inherent value so you don't waste your waste your wealth. Right. And with you know with trying to store wheat, you've got the problem of the rats. You've got to keep the rats out. With chocolate you've got the problem of the humans. You got to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. So um money's based on two universal principles. And the first one is universal convertibility. With money as a catalyst, you can turn almost anything into almost anything else. Yes. And the second uh, principle is universal trust. With the use of money, any two people can cooperate on almost any project. So money allows millions of strangers to cooperate effectively every day. Yes. Um, now, unfortunately, it turns out there's a downside. Yes, and Maharari puts these so very well. So it corrodes local traditions. Yeah. Uh, intimate relations and human values are replaced by cold economic laws of supply and demand. Humans have always valued priceless things, such as honour, loyalty and love. Yes. Um, but money tries to break through into those things as yes. well. And, you, and we see such things as, over history, we've seen parents being forced to sell their children into slavery so that they can feed the other children. Yes. Um, Nowadays, there's a fairly um, robust market for harvested organs. Yes. Uh, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, it's like, it's like this cold, sort of merciless type entity. And once it starts entering into the things that we actually value, you can have problems. Money is command over economic resources. Um, but that can be converted to power over a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. So we're, we're nearly done. Basically, the universal trust that money builds, it's not in the humans. It's no. in the money itself. Yes. Um, and, you know, you, we hear about people that treat money as their God and raise money above other people and so forth. And yes. so now, now we're starting to get problems. Um, we don't trust the stranger or even the next door neighbour sometimes. No. But, but we do trust the coins they hold. Right. And we're trying to... We're talking now about trusting the king whose face is on the coin or the, you know, the American currency is got in God we trust. Um, but, I, but can I just say yeah. something there? <clears throat> I don't use money because I trust the queen or the king or no. whatever. I use it because I know you trust it. Yes, correct. You know, it's, it's, it's in the zeitgeist. Yes, exactly so. Yeah. Um, but you're also trusting, for example, central banks and stuff like that to manage it so that you're, you're trusting... That yeah, look, I suppose I am. I, I wouldn't be aware of that until that trust goes away. So yes. you have a run on a bank and you lose your money and you're yep. all of a sudden like, oh man, maybe I shouldn't have trusted them. Yep. But it's not something I think about. You know, when I'm pulling a $50 note, which is rare, out yes. of my wallet, I'm not thinking, okay, do I trust all the, all the structures and, and corporations that are behind this dollar? Yep. I just trust it cause I'm, because I can assume that the person I give it to is going to trust it. Yeah. I trust it until something comes up which gives me cause to wonder about that yes. trust. Yeah. Um, and I would suggest you've lived in a sheltered society, which you yeah. largely have. Yeah, sure. Um, that gets us to the end of the, the chapter, unless you wanted to say anything else before we get to your unanswerable questions. No, because I think uh, some of these tricky questions, you've got a bunch of them here, will give me more than enough scope to... <laughs> to wax lyrical. <laughs> um, so first one, Hutto, is money the root of all evil? Right, yes, and I, I know that you know that's not what Christ was getting at, because Christ specifically said, love of money is the root of all evil. I actually evil. didn't even know... 
Christ said it. I knew it was from the Bible. Oh, right. I didn't know it was something Jesus said. Yes, yes, it's a, a direct one from, from Christ. And he is referring exactly to this point that money, which is power of economic resources, can be used to corrupt things like justice. There's plenty of passages in the Bible about how the judges are being bribed and stuff like that. Uh, Harari makes the thing of how you can convert uh, sexual benefits into salvation for your soul. The prostitute goes out, earns money selling her body, then comes and buys some uh, indulgences. indulgences from the, the priest. Yeah. Um, money can be used to gain political power. Uh, money can be used to gain military power. Mer mercenaries have forever sold their warfare abilities to city-states and things like that. So part of your problem is that everybody wants money because with this power of economic resources, you can get power over all sorts of other stuff as well. Yeah. And it directly corrupts things like justice, loyalty, honesty, the sort of things which someone like Jesus is trying to say are what matter. You know, he, he picks up the coin and says... This is Caesar's head on the coin. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. This is not what God is interested in. Yeah. God is interested in your soul, your honesty, your worship and stuff like this. Um, and, you know, yes, we sold New York Island for a few beads and coloured watsits. In order to get into the world economic trade... Aborigines were selling land and stuff like that without really knowing what they were doing. Mm. We'd shove them some worthless currency and say, yes, now you can buy food and alcohol and stuff like this. Um, and they were selling the tribal lands which they thought were like the air. Well, you can't sell the air, can you? It's, yeah. Um, so absolutely, love of money. The other really pernicious thing about money... With all power should go responsibility. And at least to some extent, certainly in democracies, we try to make sure that politicians are held accountable for what they do with their political power. Military officers are held accountable for what they do, this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The wonderful thing about being rich is that no responsibilities come with it. Yeah. This is just pure power. Yeah, um, yeah. And the only other thing that comes with no responsibility like that is uh, having children. Well, yes. Um, <laughs> children always create issues, of course, when it comes to inheritance. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. So, yes, unfortunately, love of money is indeed pretty close to the root of all evil. Money itself is not evil. Money is a very useful thing for trade and economic efficiency and this sort of thing. And it's spectacularly noticeable that the great codes of religion actually have very little to say about economic things. Mm. Be honourable, be trustworthy, be charitable, all these sort of things, yes, but not very much about how you make wealth. Yeah. Well, I'm going to give you zero for that because you um, you didn't really answer the question, although you did put a, a sort of bring it up at some point. But the okay. question was, is money the root of all evil? Now, my, I'll give you my answer. No. <laughs> and it is, it is the root of some evil, but there is plenty of evil that takes place in the world where money's not involved. And I, I would say an example of that is cheating on your partner. Not a monetary transaction, but still not a very nice thing to do. Also true. Um, still heavily focused in power, but we won't go into that. I'm going to ask the basic question here. So how much do I have to pay you for you to give me a pass? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> buy me a beer I can handle that alright I'll give you half a mark um, can money buy happiness uh, well I can certainly buy you beer uh, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like one now that, now that we're talking about it um, can money buy happiness not directly but it can it can dispense with a lot of things which are causes of unhappiness and misery, like not being able to pay your electricity bill, and it can buy you a lot of things which... It can buy forms of pleasure, for example, yeah. which is not directly happiness, but definitely can contribute. I'll give you a tick for that one, because you've answered it right. So money can't buy you happiness, but it can prevent a lot of causes of unhappiness. And uh, as I've mentioned to you plenty of times, because we talk and we're mates, um, they've done studies on this. 
Yes. And it turns out that every dollar you earn up until, up until around $75,000 a year in, in our society will make actually make you happier or right. make you less unhappy. Right. And then every dollar after that basically contributes nothing to your happiness. That's and right. I, I believe it. I mean, uh, but living in poverty, it's, it's almost impossible to be happy, you know, um, unless you're some kind of spiritually aware monk or something. Um, but it's a miserable life. But um, yeah, being a billionaire is not going to make you any happier than, than having 75 grand a year, in my opinion. Okay. Um, the band Dire Straits, who were so named because when they started out, they were indeed in Dire Straits. Yeah. Um, but when they became rich, they, uh, they responded to this question by saying, look, anyone who says money can't buy you happiness simply doesn't know where to shop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm going to say, yeah, I'll give you a tip because I think it reduces unhappiness. So I don't think it brings you happiness. And I think that's what you said. Um, next question. Uh, Harari makes a statement at, at one point and we've spoken about it, but he basically says everyone always wants money. That's why it works. Right. And my question to you is, does everyone always want money? There are some who don't, but they're outliers. And there's a lot of people that say they don't that are mistaken. So, you know, I'm always meeting people that say, oh, look, I'm not that interested in money. But if they won the lottery, they're not going to give it all away. Indeed. They're going to keep a fair slice of it. Yes. So, you know, it's not what people say, but what they do that, that matters. Correct. Um, look, there may be exceptions, but they only prove the rule. Yeah. Clearly, money would not be working unless the vast majority of people wanted money. Yeah. So you get a tick for that one too? That's good. As long as your answers agree with what I think, then you get a tick. This doesn't make it difficult, Is the world becoming one big heartless marketplace? So Harari describes it as that at some point in his, in his chapter. Yep. And uh, I thought, hmm, is, is, is that true? This is certainly one of the things I've seen articles about relating to China, where they're saying, you know, we are losing our old cultural values of helping one another. There was... There's YouTube or something similar of somebody coming had an injury in China and the traffic just carries on driving past and yeah. they're bemoaning this is not the way it would have been 20 years ago. Yeah. Now we've just become capitalists like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. So what's your answer? My answer is it's rather looking that way. Yeah. And it's... A lot of tension in our modern society is this tension between capitalist forces and humanity. You know, it's even things like, oh, man, I don't really want to work 55 hours a week because, you know, I don't see my wife and kids and I'm unhappy and all that. But I'm kind of, you know, I also want the money. Yes. Um, look, we are sold ideas of what matters. We talked about that in previous chapters already, you know, we, some people, at one stage, what you wanted was a better pyramid, and now you want to travel and see the world. These are just shared mythos yeah. um, as to what you do when you're rich or what you have to do to be happy. And uh, we'll get into psychology some stage and look at what really does cause happiness, and it's not money. But nevertheless, the capitalist marketplace is very heartless, mm. and it is at this stage, very much dominating the world. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a big problem. We've got wealth distribution problems all around the place. We have people starving and people who are, are rich and not enough people who care. I was struck by the, the, the part of the chapter where Harari talks about the benefits of money, how it doesn't discriminate all this. I thought, wow, this sounds like... This almost sounds like a saint, this yep. money stuff. That's right. And maybe we need to be more aware of some of the good things that money does. I know we're all very aware of, you know, how evil money can be. Um, but it's, it's like anything. It's a, it's a pros and cons, isn't it? It's a trade-off. It, it's a good point. Look I mean, that. it solves a lot of problems really well. Yeah, I, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, I see on Cora, idealists saying things like, you know, when can we get rid of money? The, the Star Trek universe, so... Got well, if, if you get rid of money, you, you have to, you'd have to go back to the, the honour system, you know, the doing favours system, and it's really hard to manage. There is no way that you yeah, can you get can't rid do of it. money because a basic positive economics is about maximising 
satisfaction of wants from scarce economic resources. And in order to do that, you've got to be able to account for the value of the resources you are using yeah. and the value of benefits you're generating. Money is the unit of measurement. Yeah. So you can't get rid of it. It's just a naive I'm not idealism. sure it's the correct unit of measurement. I, I would like to see a rather than a, a gross national product, I'd rather see a gross happiness index or something like that. I think I think we need to change our definitions of success. It's not just about economic growth. Oh, that's a different story. Yeah. Changing our definitions, our, our mythos of success, yeah. I think, we is seriously in need of, of yeah. work. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so I think your answer is, well, yeah, it's sort of heading, you know, it certainly has its tendency to be big and heartless. Um, but it has some good points as well. So I'll give you, I'll sort of give you three quarters of a mark for that. Wow. Hard earned um, marks today. <laughs> Does the market always prevail? Ah, what a really interesting question. Um, well, in as much as the market is supposedly the the balance Invisible point hand. Of, yes, the balance point of everybody's opinions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to some extent, it does. It works for the median case. <laughs> Correct. At the same time, we have to remember that markets are imperfect and they're not perfectly informed. And so, you know... Even but even if they're perfect, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that they're, they're perfect for the individual. They're just perfect for the... This is where buyers and sellers yes, meet. Yes, but what I'm also saying is that markets don't always prevail over time. For example, after Archduke Ferdinand had been shot, yep. and it was clear that to most people that Europe was about to go to war, the share market was still trading blissfully onward in London, saying yeah. things like, you know, oh, no, look, we're, we're too smart to go to war these days. It, um, yeah. Nobody wins in a big war. We all know that. Yep. And so for about three weeks, the market was sailing on. Yeah. While everybody else was saying, you know, war is inevitable, you know, it, it's going to happen. Mm. So eventually, of course, the market collapsed and really collapsed. But there can be a brief period of time where the euphoria of the herd is uh, yeah. Yeah. way out of line with reality. Yeah. Uh, okay. Now, my last question. Uh, how many monies would you like? I presume by this you're meaning how many currencies would you like? No, how many, how many currency would you like in your life? Oh, um, oh, just more than other people around me have got. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, look, there's... Because I have an answer. Okay, well, I'll give a couple of things here. One, of course, is... Yeah, power you won't get a full mark unless you give a number. <laughs> power over economic resources is is a good thing, and uh, so I want enough to satisfy my needs and a few of my wants and stuff. How like much this. is that? Um, but you've also got the trading point of how much effort am I prepared to get in? Yeah, put in you know, the so cost of earning the correct. Money. So you know there is, as you've pointed out a couple of times, a a law of diminishing returns. The yes. more I've got the less important to me a new one is. And that's one of the reasons why CEO um, remuneration is so inflated. Mm. These rich, competent people, which some of them are, um, are basically saying, look, I've got enough to sit by the river and fish for the rest of my life. You really want me to give my life to making this corporation richer? You're going to have to really lay it on. Yeah, yeah. So you get zero for that because you didn't answer the question. Right. Uh, I I want two million monies. Two million. That's oh. my that my number. I'll tell you why. Because I want I want a, I would like to passively earn seventy five thousand dollars a year, That's and two million would would uh, well and truly get me there. Even yeah. even one million I'd like as well. Yeah. Because I, I I sort of usually assume you can earn about eight percent on your money. So eight percent of one million is eighty thousand. So the extra million is really cushioning. Well, I always said you were cheap. So you would sell me your soul for $2 million? No, I wouldn't sell you my soul for it, but I do want it. Uh-huh. Um, now, whether I'm prepared to do what it takes to get it is, is another question that you've right. raised, and yes. that's where I struggle a bit because um, I just want this money to materialise. I don't want to have to, you know, go through the rat race to get it. Right. But there's no doubt that I do want $2 million monies. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, we've certainly got your base price here, so that's good to know. And, yeah. So if anybody out there wants to give me two million monies, then uh, give me a call. But I, I can get somewhere with you for a bottle of beer.
<laughs> okay. All right, so, so that's the last of my questions. Look, you were really poor today. There were seven questions. I think you got three, three out of seven. Okay. Um, I'd like to add one comment at this point too, because sure. I, I did think your last question of how many monies would you like uh, related to a number of currencies. Yeah. Um, one of the things about money and trust is, of course, it can disappear very quickly. Yes. Um, so we do have the US dollar as the global default dollar. We do have central banks managing money, and it matters. Some of the examples of currencies we had which went up in smoke, the German Papiermark, the Weimar Republic, in 1921 and 1923 was an example of a major Nation. There was a big market in wheelbarrows because you needed a wheelbarrow of money to buy a loaf of bread. You certainly did. Good for the wheelbarrow industry. Yeah. Uh, hyperinflation in Zimbabwe. When Zimbabwe, Rhodesia first became Zimbabwe, it, uh, uh, it had a currency which was better than par with the US dollar. And after some significant mismanagement, they managed to hit inflation of 89.76 trillion percent per year. <laughs> I don't even know how many zeros that is. <laughs> In 2008. <laughs> it's, it might be six trillion zeros. It's a paradox, that number. <laughs> it's, it's pretty darn big. It's 89.7 with six trillion zeros after it. The Greek drachma, of course, has had its times. The uh, Italian lira has been a constant state of worry. The Venezuelan bolivar at present has, um, has gone through some hiccups. So, yes, currencies of major countries, that universal trust that my neighbour is happy to accept it, has disappeared and gone up in smoke from time. So the time. answer to how many monies would you like basically depends on depends what type of money we're talking about. It depends very much on whether the... Oh, look, I'll give you half a mark for it now, so you've got three and a half. And seven. I can tell you that I not, would not like to see debts payable in US dollars. I, I, I met a, a girl from Zimbabwe, and she used to be a trillionaire, she told me. Right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Richest person in the world, in a sense. Absolutely, yeah. but tragically, not worth it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think we're pretty close to done, don't you? I do. I, that beer is calling me. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm, I've really got a... Uh, I'm really thinking about having a beer now, actually. <laughs> uh, so, um, thanks for your time today, and um, I'll see you on the flip-flop. Looking forward to it. With a beer. <laughs> La 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 la